This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll speak with Amy Willens about Ivanka, our de facto first lady. What can she possibly do for women who work? Also, historian Eric Foner says there was another time in our past when the federal government was as vicious as Trump is making it today. We'll speak with him later in the show. But first, a new direction for the crippled Democratic Party. For that, we turn to Keith Ellison. The Democratic Party is facing its most serious crisis in many decades. Maybe you've heard the news. Republicans control the White House and Congress and also 33 governorships and two-thirds of the state legislatures. The Democratic National Committee needs to do something big and something fast. And the nation supports Keith Ellison for DNC chair. He represents Minneapolis in the House. He was the first Muslim elected to Congress. He's co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. And he joins us now from Washington. Keith Ellison, it's an honor and a pleasure to say welcome to the program. Hey, good to be here, man. Thank you. So Hillary did win the popular vote by almost three million votes. Some people say that means the party is not in crisis, not in collapse. Uh, what do you think? What I think is that, yes, we won the popular vote. We actually, we've done it twice in uh, within recent memory, but we still didn't win. Uh, George W. Bush by all accounts, uh, lost the popular vote. And then how Hillary Clinton won the popular vote but didn't, but didn't become president, both times because of the uh, Electoral College. Now, look, it makes sense for Democrats to say we need to get rid of the Electoral College. And I do support popular vote. But we do know what the rules are. And they may be wacky and they may be stupid, but they are the rules. And we have to figure out how to get to 270 and what that means is that we have got a campaign in places like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. We cannot rely just on computer modeling and analytics. We've got to rely on making telephone calls and building relationships with voters. That's what we got to do, man. I mean, we do it in the off year. We've got to do it 
so that people really begin to trust us that we will fight for them and never really back down at all. So that's the story right there, man. I mean, I mean, the real truth of the situation is that uh, the rules are not good, but we do, but they are known. And we have to, until we can change the Constitution, campaign in a way uh, designed to win. And we could have done it. We didn't do it. And, uh, but if I'm DNC chair, we're going to be, we're going to have a summer canvas where we're knocking in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and Milwaukee, and in Detroit, and in Flint, and in Harrisburg, and in Erie, and we're going to be getting the vote out in all these places. There were these popular protests against Trump the first two weekends after he took office, which were pretty awe-inspiring. Of course, the Women's March and the airport protests, they didn't really have much to do with the Democratic Party. I know you were there. What did you see? What do you think are the lessons? Here's the real lesson is that, you know, the the Democratic Party has got to reconstruct itself in a way where it is trusted and it is relied upon by the activists in the street as the activists' way to change the law to reflect popular will. So right now, there's a disconnect. And the Democratic Party should still try to take over the popular movement. The popular movement is the popular movement. But what we should do is see ourselves as allies, partners, and supporters of the popular movement. So if you look back to the 1960s, I mean, the Democratic Party did not go and inspire Martin Luther King. He inspired them, right? Martin Luther King told them we need to have equal justice for all. And the Democratic Party, leaders in it like Hubert H. Humphrey and people like that, took a clue from that great movement and reflected that movement in law. And that really is what we need to do. We need to take inspiration from this movement, join with this movement, support the movement. And then the people in the movement will say, we're going to vote for these guys because we believe they're going to carry out our vision. And when they give us the chance to do it, we got to do it. And we can't fail. So what exactly is the job of the DNC chair? How much could a new DNC chair actually accomplish if, if they were successful? The DNC chair's job is to get Democrats elected. The DNC chair's job is also to get the resources to get Democrats elected. The DNC's chair's job is to help build a sense of unity and community among Democrats and, you know, likely or potentially Democratic voters. And uh, the Democratic Party chair, most of all, needs to create a culture where every single American person, whether they're Democrat or not, knows that the Democratic Party is going to be fighting for working men and women and fighting for respect and dignity to all people. So that's really what the Democratic Party chair needs to do. They don't do it alone. There's um, 440 DNC members, who, which is the organizing committee for the Democratic Party. They have the help of vice chairs and executive committee, but it really is the chair that's supposed to uh, carry that vision to help Democrats get elected up and down the ticket from dog catcher to president and everywhere in between. And let's talk about your history a bit. I see that you have won 16 elections since the first time you ran, which was the, which was for the Minnesota State Legislature in 2002. Oh, yeah. This past year, you were one of the first to endorse Bernie, and then you supported Hillary in the general election. What did you learn from the Bernie campaign? What did you learn from the Hillary campaign? You know, what I learned from the Bernie campaign is that you can fund a campaign $27 at a time. Uh, what I learned from the Bernie campaign is that it's very important to engage the grassroots in those rallies and those and those and that kind of grassroots engagement is super important 
to in- increase the uh, level of enthusiasm and commitment for people and the passion. And then what I learned from the Hillary campaign is that, you know, we really, you know, we really do have a candidate uh, who cares about families, who cares about children, who has a long record of doing that. What I learned about the Hillary campaign is that, you know, uh, misogyny, sexism is still a, a very potent force in our world. And that uh, what I learned about the Hillary campaign is that political smear is the first line in the Republican playbook, and they're going to whip it out on anyone and everyone. And so we can't worry about whether they're going to smear us. They are going to smear us. But we have got to fight through those smears by helping Democrats understand that smear for Republicans is a tactical device. And perhaps the biggest lesson that I learned is that when we don't win, people pay. Yeah. You know, people, you know, when we don't win, people pay. We, because we lost this election, you know, uh, families are going to be separated from each other. They're going to, they say they're going to try to build a wall to separate people from each other. They, they're going to try to take away people's health care. They're going to try to take away Wall Street reform. They took away the fiduciary rule to help people protect, be protected in retirement. And now we're basically saying that it's fine for people to get conflicted advice from a, a financial advisor as they're trying to plan for retirement. When Democrats don't win, pain comes shortly thereafter. And that is an important lesson yeah. for everyone to learn. The country right now is bitterly divided, and there are huge areas that are now solidly Republican. You talked a little bit about how we could win back Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Is there a realistic way of reaching some of these areas that are more deeply red? Absolutely, because if you look at these deeply red, you show me a deeply red state, and I'll show you a state that has a large number of people who don't vote at all. You show me, you know, Texas, you know, has has a very— low voter turnout. And if we could just engage the electorate, we could take these states and turn them blue. As a matter of fact, in Texas, they did really well. In Harris County, they did really well in uh, um, San Antonio. And, uh, and, and you know, and, and there's all kind of parts of this, um, of this country where we would win if we just turned out the vote. In other words, we don't have to take a Tea Party and turn them into a progressive. We just got to get the progressive voters to show up. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's easy to see the need to fight against Trump, but we also need to know what we are fighting for. What's your message there? Well, let me tell you, man. People say there's no the Democratic Party doesn't have a message. I have to respectfully disagree. I mean, the Democratic Party is the party of Eleanor and Franklin Roosevelt who fought for economic inclusion for working people, who came up with the Labor Standards Act, who came up with the minimum wage and Social Security, who came up with basics that we fight for every day, the right to organize, the Wagner Act. That's still a core feature of the Democratic promise. And, and, and the other part of the Democratic promise is, is you know, maybe embodied by uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, inclusion and, and equality for all people, you know, so that nobody's left out. You know, that Hubert Humphrey, you know, who said, we're going to walk out of the dark shadow of states' rights into the bright sunshine of human rights, you know? 1948. And, uh, that was 1948, the Democratic National Convention. Yeah, and, and, and let, me, let me tell you, those two, the Democratic Party stands on two legs. One is economic inclusion, and one is social inclusion. One says, we don't care what your sex is, who you love, what color you are, where you were born. You are equal, and you are fully equal and fully uh, a part of this society. 
whether you were born here or whether you came here later, you're one of us. And the other pillar of the Democratic Party is everybody gets to make a living. And if you are too young to work, too old to work, or too sick to work, we will take care of you. Everybody else, the government's going to do everything it can to make sure you can make a dignified living. And that means guaranteeing the right to organize in the labor union, the right to a minimum wage, the right to, to, to be able to uh, retire, you know, Social Security, and important things like this. So, so the Democratic Party, you know, is, people say there's no message. Look, you know, we, the message is economic and social inclusion. It's not that hard to me. Now, the real problem is, do we consistently stand on that and do people believe it? That's an open question in my mind. But what we stand for, I think, is actually pretty clear. And I think that um, that's the real mission. We've got to fight to make sure that, you know, uh, that people know that what we stand for because we stand for it. I mean, and you got to give it to Republicans. They're pretty consistent. They believe that rich people do not have enough money. And they consistently try to get them more. Yes. They're consistently trying to make sure that their taxes are cut, that they don't have to abide by regulation, that they don't have to, to, to pay for the social safety net. And the Republicans, they say that's what they're about, and that is what they are about. And what else are the Republicans are about? They're again, they're, they think the poor have too much. They think that that poor woman who's working two jobs to make it, she shouldn't have any food stamps to, because her jobs don't pay enough. She shouldn't have an increase in the minimum wage because her employer would pay her less if he possibly could. You know what I mean? And so they, that's what they believe, and they're consistently trashing on poor people. They pass laws in Florida saying that you can't get any welfare unless you pass a year analysis, and yet we give out all kinds of corporate welfare, and they don't have to pass no year analysis. So th that's true. This, this is, so this is, this is the reality of, of the Republicans. But the Republic, Republicans say we're greedy, selfish, and we want to tell you how to live your life unless it's in pursuit of profit. And they say it and they do it. But we sometimes say we're for working people, and then we support things that aren't that good for working people. So, we, so the Democratic Party should never be found uh, on the wrong side of trying to expand Social Security. We should always be for it. We should never be found supporting, you know, trade agreements that are going to hollow out our cities. We should always be for fair trade, you know. We should always be for building our infrastructure. We should always be for education, public education. So that's, that's, what, I, that's what I believe. 440 members of the Democratic National Committee will cast their ballots at the party's upcoming winter meeting, which will be February 23rd to 26th in Atlanta. Keith Ellison, we wish you good luck. We need you to win, and we thank you for talking with us today. Thank you. Now it's time to talk about Ivanka, our de facto first lady. Amy Willens has been thinking about Ivanka. She has the cover story in the current issue of The Nation magazine. Amy is a frequent guest here and a longtime contributing editor at The Nation. She's also the former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker, and she's written for The New York Times, The Washington Post, Politico, and lots more. She won the National Book Critics Circle Award for her most recent book about Haiti. It's called Farewell, Fred Voodoo. And she also teaches in the literary journalism program at UC Irvine. Amy, welcome back. Thanks, John. 
So do you think it's fair to describe Ivanka as our de facto first lady? I do think it's fair. Uh, First of all, we know that for the next semester at private schools in New York, uh, Melania Trump, who is the actual living wife of the president, uh, is going to be living in New York with her with their son, so he can finish out the year at school there. Um, we don't know what will be her plan after uh, the term ends for the summer, say, and then next year. And Ivanka is the closest daughter to the president, so it's likely that she's going to be the serve as a kind of first lady figure. She says, no, 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 you'll see Melania is going to be the greatest first lady ever. I know I admire her so. It's going to be wonderful. But I don't see it happening. Ivanka had her public political, what do we call it? Coming out party. Coming out party. Thank you. At the Republican National Convention. Her debut. Where she spoke about women's issues. It sounded sort of like being a Hillary supporter. Just remind us what that moment was like. Right. It was a strange moment of a very, very strange (laughs) convention in which they seemed to trot out people at a very fast clip who had nothing to say. And then Ivanka looking very glam and and very respectable at the same time came out and gave this what seemed in the midst of the craziness to be a very rational speech about maternity leave and women's rights and empowering women who work and all the stuff that sounded very good if anodyne for women and didn't sound like the Trump campaign. And maternity leave, she has made her issue. She's been talking about it ever since. She says she's bringing it to her father, and it's going to become part of the Trump agenda. What exactly does maternity leave mean in Ivanka world? Well, the proposal that she has been touting, and I don't know if it's changing now based on reaction to it or if it's just written in stone the way so many things are for the Trumps, But it seems to be a policy, a six-week leave. Just by contrast, France has a 16-week leave. This is paid leave. This is paid leave. Six weeks of paid leave. Paid leave for birth mothers who can prove legal married status and whose jobs will not pay them this six-week leave. So that means, if I understand it properly, and I think I do, that it excludes single mothers who are not married. Yes. It excludes same-sex mother families. It includes the mother, the birth mother, if she is a birth mother, but not the non-birth mother. Mm-hmm. It excludes all adoptive mothers. Whoa. Because they're not the birth mother. Whoa. Even if they are married. And it excludes all men, all fathers, all same-sex father couples, unless they happen to have managed to give birth to their child. (laughs) Not very many. What is the status of this? Has Donald Trump embraced this warmly and and put it at the top of his agenda? Well, frankly, we've heard nothing about it. Nothing. The only thing we have is that uh, Dina Powell has been hired by the Trump administration to Uh, be a senior advisor, uh, mostly on women's issues. But she's not really a women's issues person. She comes from Goldman Sachs, not from the the bank itself, but from their charitable development wing. And so she has this woman, Ms. Powell, knows a lot about 
giving and uh, philanthropy, but we don't have any idea what she'll do in this kind of a job. In your cover story in The Nation, you you talk about what Donald Trump's response to Ivanka's political agenda has been. Well, one thing he has said is pregnancy is a big hindrance to women in the workplace. And let's see, what else has he said? Well, he talks about when he talks about sexual harassment, people have asked him, well, what, what do you think Ivanka would do if, if she had to experience uh, that kind of thing on the job? And he said, well, one, she wouldn't experience that on the job. And two, if she did, she would, she would just go out and find another job. So this is not exactly the right response for most women who experience some kind of sexual harassment on the job because they can't just go out and find a new job. So yes, his response has been very little. Very little. In fact, if I could just quote your article in The Nation, you say, he doesn't listen to her. Well, that's what she says. She's been asked many times, like, does he listen to you? And she always says, depends on the day. That's her her hmm. <laughs> pat response. But we don't know. I, I, I don't get the feeling he listens to her or much to anyone else for that matter. The way the media have portrayed Ivanka and her husband, Jared, are that they are the moderate calming influences in the Trump White House, in Trump world, and they provide a kind of balance and counterweight to Bannon, the fascist maniac. Is that your impression? Have you seen any evidence of this? It's not my impression at all. I mean, I think Bannon obviously is kind of a cowboy. And he's out there. And, uh, you know, if you look at Jared and Ivanka and try to ignore the kind of zombie overtones of the entire Trump next generation, (laughs) they seem like a pretty moderate, middle of the road, looking-ish couple. They know a lot of people. They're much more integrated into a social Manhattan scene than Trump himself was ever able to be. But I would say they're very far to the right. They're business people who uh, haven't shown that they have any power with Trump to be moderate. There's no evidence of their moderation in his behavior. In fact, in your cover story in The Nation magazine, you describe, you respond to the argument that Ivanka is a moderating force on her family, on her father. You describe her as a loyal tailwagger for her father's right-wing train wreck. She's an obedient daughter. Look, she's always imitated him in everything she does. She went to Wharton. He went to Wharton. Then when she graduated from Wharton, she went to the, essentially, she went almost directly to the Trump organization where she stayed. And uh, now she's tail waggingly following him to Washington. She goes to the places where he has power. And she uh, derives a lot of stuff and success from his power. And she went to The Apprentice. I mean, all of it is of a piece. It's not, we're not seeing her influencing him. We're seeing her following him. Ivanka has done one thing that her father didn't do. She's markets products through the internet at IvankaTrump.com. You've uh, spent some time looking at IvankaTrump.com. Tell us about it. Well, I could spend a lot of time on IvankaTrump.com. <laughs> she has a brand, and she sells clothing and accessories to women her age, basically. So that's what its, its real motivating reason is for its existence. But beyond that, it is played as this kind of femvertising website where um, the appeal is to young women supposedly on the rise. 
And uh, it has a lot of video content for women who work. And that's all capitalized, women who work. And she's got a hashtag, women who work. But the women who work on it, I mean, I talk in my piece a little bit about the women who work on IvancaTrump.com versus the women who work in America. And on IvancaTrump.com, they all have really pretty nice clothes, uh, sleek trousers and cashmere sweaters and long hair that's straightened in the fashion of the day. And they are all 35 or under. Maybe one is 37. One might be 41 that I saw. I thought, whoa, that's an elderly person. (laughs) No one is fat. No one, you know, no one looks real. No one has any reality whatsoever. But they all talk about work not as if there's ever a problem at work. So no one on IvancaTrump.com ever says, I just can't stand my boss. No one on IvancaTrump.com ever says, you know, I'm thinking my career matters to me so much, I'm not going to have a baby for a long time. It's all about uh, women who choose to work and have their little families and are trying to balance the two. And that's, of course, it's a big issue, but it's all a very uh, upper middle class kind of demographic that she's appealing to. I took a look at IvancaTrump.com and that same section that, that you explored, Women Who Work, and I learned there that everything you need is already inside you. Yes, it is, John. I'm so glad that John Wiener got to go to <laughs> IvancaTrump.com. It took me a long time to find out this important uh, information. You feel that there are other kinds of working women who are somehow not part of hashtag women who work. Well, I talk a little bit in the piece about another woman who works who was in the in the public eye for a long time, and that's Roseanne Barr, whom I had the luck to interview once here in Los Angeles. And uh She's quite an outspoken person. Whatever she's speaking out about at the moment, she's she's outspoken. And I compare the kind of women you see on IvancaTrump.com to the kind of women you saw on Roseanne Barr's show, Roseanne, in the late 1980s and early 1990s. And, you know, Roseanne had all these bad jobs. She worked in a plastic factory. I'm talking about the character, not the stand-up comedian, who is a very different can of worms. She worked in a plastics factory at one very low point. She was a hair sweeper in a salon. (laughs) She was a waitress, of course. These are the kinds of women I remember working when I was younger and living in hard scrabble, New Jersey. You know, they weren't people who wore slim linen pants and cropped cashmere sweaters to work. They wore like polyester slacks and uh, a sweatshirt. That that was more like the women who worked who I knew. And I think the women who work in America are still like that. They work in chicken factories. They wait tables. And they they are not sleek, lovely uh, givers of fanciful gifts, which is what IvancaTrump.com and her women who work uh, hashtag would have you think. Now, isn't there a conflict between Ivanka being an advisor to the President of the United States and Ivanka running a business using her father's name? Isn't this a potential violation of the Emoluments Clause of the Constitution? What does she say? Does she have an official role in the White House? She does not, on purpose, have an official role in the White House, although she has moved aside at IvancaTrump.com. So I don't know what, how she's working that angle, but there is a paragraph up there about how she's not really involved in the day-to-day business 
there anymore. So it does bear his name, but it bears her name. She gets to have a name. But she is not an official at the White House, and that's the role of her advisor friend, Dina Powell. So if she's not officially an advisor working in the White House, and she's no longer running IvancaTrump.com, what is she doing all day? What does she say she's doing? She's taking care of the kids. She's getting them adjusted to their new city. She's, how, how old are her kids? They're little. little. They're like seven, five, and below school age. Mm -hmm. And, you know, getting them settled, finding schools for them, finding doctors. Basically, what, as far as I can see, Ivanka has been retrofitted into a Trump view of what women should do in the world. She's now a mom who kind of works mm -hmm. from home without an official position. And is she going to really be in charge of women? And to me, maybe what it says is this is how much Donald Trump cares about the women issue. He's said, my daughter really advises me on women. And now he's got her in a position where she's a mom who works from home and is going to be like the first lady, maybe in charge of White House dinners. Oh, and also the women of America. Thanks. <laughs> Amy Willens, her piece, What Can Ivanka Trump Possibly Do for Women Who Work? Question mark is on the cover of The Nation magazine this week. Amy, thanks for coming in today. Thanks a lot, John. Next up, Trump and history. Donald Trump's executive order barring refugees from Muslim countries and his frequent threats to deport millions of undocumented immigrants might seem unique in American history. But Eric Foner thinks we can find some similar events in our past. Eric is a member of the nation's editorial board. He's professor of history at Columbia University, and he's the author of many books, including most recently, Gateway to Freedom, The Hidden History of the Underground Railroad. We reached him today in New York City. Hi, Eric. Good afternoon, John. Nice to talk to you. Well, was there a time in American history when the federal government was as vicious as it seems to be right now under Donald Trump? Well, before the Civil War, immediately before the Civil War, uh, the federal government was mostly, uh, you'd have to say, in the hands of slave owners or people very sympathetic to slave owners and did what it could to promote the interests of slavery. And one of the good examples of that, which is somewhat analogous to things we're seeing today, was the period of the Fugitive Slave Law, from which was passed in 1850. And following that, federal power was used to capture fugitives who were like refugees today, people who were fleeing from oppressive circumstances, to capture them, to take them to court, and to send them back where they were going. They Sometimes they even used federal troops, like in Boston, to um, transport uh, these poor fugitives who were captured back to slavery in the South. Now, you know, refugees today are fleeing very difficult conditions, not slavery exactly, but the the whole point about not allowing those seeking freedom and, and opportunity to get a foothold in the United States, uh, there is a parallel from that uh, to that in the era of the night of the 1850s and the treatment of fugitive slaves. And the parallel goes beyond the federal government's oppressive role to the uh, the resistance. Let's talk about 
the resistance to the fugitive slave law, I understand there were sanctuary communities. Oh, absolutely. They didn't really use the word sanctuary uh, as we do today, but that's what they were doing. There were places where local officials refused to cooperate with federal agents. In fact, quite a few northern states, starting in the 1820s, passed what were called personal liberty laws, which made it, uh, which basically barred local officials from helping capture fugitive slaves. They said, you know, no sheriff can arrest a fugitive slave, just as today. Like in New York City here, the police are told not to cooperate with immigration officials uh, who are seeking to apprehend um, undocumented immigrants. Uh, back then, they, they said you can't use our local jails to hold uh, captured fugitives. There were plenty of people in the North who were perfectly happy to help send back fugitive slaves. I don't want to suggest that the entire North was uh, radical abolitionists, but there were many communities which were like sanctuaries. Yes, New Bedford, Massachusetts was called the Fugitive Gibraltar. Syracuse, up in upstate New York, there were mobs that stormed uh, courthouses and removed uh, fugitives and sent them off to Canada. Uh, there were places where the law really couldn't be enforced. Of course, today, Trump is threatening to cut off federal funds to cities and even states that declare themselves sanctuaries. What efforts did, did the federal government make in the 1850s to, to uh, overpower? Well, the, there cities. weren't any federal funds back then going to states, you know, <laughs> so that was not much of a threat in the 1850s. What the federal government did was, uh, after particularly the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850 was passed, uh, there was this whole mechanism set up with these United States commissioners. These were This was a new position, a U.S. commissioner, which overrode local, uh, he could override local judicial procedures, local laws, and um, use federal marshals to apprehend fugitives, and as I said, federal troops to send them back if needed. So there were several hundred were actually captured and returned to the South through the procedures of the Fugitive Slave Law. So it's not like the federal government was you know, dealing with funding, but they certainly very actively intervened in local affairs uh, in the interests of slavery, of recapturing these fugitives. And in your new article in The Nation magazine, you also talk about a phenomenon we're seeing today, judicial resistance to the Fugitive Slave Act. Remind us about the role of judges in resisting the Fugitive Slave Act. It is very similar to some of the things going on right now. Uh, there were judges who absolutely refused to um, abide by the National Fugitive Slave Law. Here in New York, there was a guy named Judge Edmonds who just released fugitives. Uh, it was really in violation of federal law, but he said, if, any is, you know, if, if you can bring the guy to court, I'll, I'll give you a writ of habeas corpus that he has to be released. There were local uh, officials like the attorney generals today that are fighting uh, this Trump ban on immigrants and travel and everything, uh, were going to court to try to get the federal law overturned. In Wisconsin, the state Supreme Court declared the national fugitive slave law unconstitutional wow. and said it could be enforced in uh, Wisconsin. That eventually went up to the U.S. Supreme Court, which overturned that in a case called Abelman v. Booth. This was the same court that the year before had issued, or two years before, had issued the Dred Scott decision, so they were rather uh, pro-slavery. The point is that local power, you know, we have a federal system, and where the states have powers and the federal government has powers, 
And local power can be used for progressive purposes. We should not think that national power is always, you know, left-leaning. It has been in many ways in our generation. But the states can also exert their powers to defend individual liberties, and that's what's happening today. I also want to talk about direct action. You mentioned briefly the role of of people taking to the streets to to challenge the Fugitive Slave Act. Of course, we've seen these huge demonstrations the first two weeks of Trump in the White House. They they didn't actually the airport protests didn't actually storm the detention areas of the airports. Right. But back in the 1850s, parallel events did happen, didn't they? Oh, no, it went further. Absolutely. You're right. There were mass demonstrations uh, here in New York City. There were, it was quite common to have, particularly with free black people. Large crowds of free black people would gather in front of courthouses where fugitive slaves were being held. Uh, sometimes they tried to storm the courthouse. Here in New York, they never succeeded in rescuing someone, but they did in Boston, they did in Syracuse, they did in Troy, New York, and some other places. In Christiana, Pennsylvania, a crowd of blacks and whites uh, actually uh, caused a big altercation when a couple of fugitives were being apprehended, and a slave owner was actually killed by the crowd who was there with a sheriff uh, trying to get his fugitive slave back. So they went further in the 1850s than we have seen so far. But I think the point about, you know, large-scale resistance is still, uh, you know, is, is a very good one. And there's one other striking parallel I learned from your article in The Nation, and that's the role of Canada. Today, of course, lots of developed countries are trying to block refugees, especially in Europe, but Canada has welcomed, I believe it's 35,000 refugees from Syria. Uh, Does that remind you of anything in the 1850s? Well, sure. Particularly after the 1850 law, you were not safe as a fugitive within the northern states. Before that, it would, uh, you know, there was a very weak federal law, and if you got to the north, you probably would be okay. But after the 1850 law, fugitives had to get to Canada, and Canada opened its doors. They said, "We are not we're not sending these people back." The federal government was very annoyed. They kept badgering the British because Canada was a British, uh, you know, province or whatever at that time, and. Um, you know, they said, no, we're not. This is not a crime in Canada. Running away from slavery is not a crime in Canada. We don't have slavery in Canada. You know, a murderer who escaped to Canada would be sent back. But, uh, the, you know, we're not sending back fugitives. So a whole community of free black people, several of them, grew up mostly around um, Ontario, you know, and Toronto, that area. By the way, Mexico also, you know, that, that's another, I should have mentioned this in my article, Mexico gave, gave refuge to fugitive slaves coming from Texas. Wow. Uh, if you were in Texas, a lot easier to get to Mexico than to Canada. And uh, the federal government spent a lot of time uh, in the 1840s and 50s badgering these neighboring countries to send back fugitives, which they refused to do. Did the slave power want to build a wall to keep slaves from escaping <laughs> to Mexico? I think they didn't have the wherewithal to build a wall back then, uh, but they certainly tried everything else to stop slaves from escaping, uh, including really severe punishments of those who did. You know, and another thing they did was Indian removal. One of the reasons for getting Indians out of the southern states was because these Indian nations offered refuge. The Seminole Indians in Florida welcomed fugitives who were running away from Georgia, and one of the reasons that the U.S. Army went in there to remove the Seminole to Oklahoma was to stop them from uh, offering a refuge to fugitive slaves. Incredible stories. 
Well, this raises the whole question of the relationship of the federal government to our freedoms and and to the powers of the states. Ever since the New Deal in the 1930s, the uh, liberals and progressives have looked to the federal government to protect freedom, to protect the Bill of Rights. States' rights has been the cry of uh, conservatives and racists who oppose federal civil rights enforcement and lots of other uh, progressive federal actions. It seems like things are changing now and that the same things were reversed in the fight over slavery and fugitive slaves. Yeah, I think we as progressives have to use whatever, just as the right has done, use the weapons that are available to us. You know, we're not dedicated to national power as an abstraction. We're dedicated to national power when it is used in the proper way, as it was, as you said, in the New Deal or in the civil rights era where it took a lot of national power to override state resistance. On the other hand, as we know, the federal power can also be used, you know, to undermine liberty as it was in the McCarthy era or, you know, under George W. Bush with Guantanamo and things like that. And I think, uh, you know, our Constitution has many different centers of power, and I think we need, we're going to have to get used to using the power of the states now to resist this onslaught of extremely reactionary policies coming from uh, Washington, D.C., and the resistance to the fugitive slave law. It's not an exact parallel, but there's enough analogies that we ought to take inspiration from the way people use local authority to oppose very repressive federal actions. Well, we're just about out of time. I wonder if you have any concluding thoughts about the Fugitive Slave Act and its lessons for us today. Well, you know, I started reading, writing this little article in The Nation thinking about uh, good analogies to uh, President Trump. And, of course, many people, including myself, have been asked by journalists, you know, are there any precedents here? I mean, sometimes people talk about Berlusconi over in Italy or uh, maybe uh, George Wallace, you know, in the United States. And it occurred to me that really one of the good precedents and parallels to Trump is Millard Fillmore. Now, I'm sure you're well aware of the career of Millard Fillmore. We're scratching our heads uh, here in, 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 uh, at, at the podcast. He, um, he, was president, he was the president who signed the Fugitive Slave Act in 1850, and uh-huh. so he's similar to Trump in trying to uh, not assist those seeking greater freedom and opportunity. And he also then later in 1856 ran for president as the candidate of the American Party, not the Make America Great Party, but the American Party, whose platform was just anti-immigrant. At that time, it was Irish immigrants they were annoyed about, not Mexican. But Fillmore took the lead of the American Party and ran for president. Unlike Trump, he was not elected in 1856. But, you know, my feeling is we should really consider Trump the Millard Fillmore of the 21st century. Donald Trump, the Millard Fillmore of the 21st century. You can read Eric Foner at thenation.com. Eric, it's been great remembering American history with you today. Okay, John, nice to talk to you. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast is co-produced by the LA Review of Books, and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles by Ernesto Orellano with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhoevel is editor and publisher of The Nation. 
Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.